This morning's scripture is coming from John chapters 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And this is the word of Lord. Well, we continue in this series this morning, Good Friday, with a question mark on the end of it. And the reason that the series is called that is the question, the looming question is, uh, what makes this Friday good? Who is it good for as we approach Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? And so this morning we are going to be looking at uh, John 18. And in the Gospel of John, John mentions the word truth or that word set 48 times. 48 times in the Gospel of John, uh, the word truth or that word set is mentioned compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke who all together only use the word truth 10 times. So that has to say to us that John is concerned about the truth. He is concerned about truth being communicated Uh, Perhaps it's because John is the latest gospel written, written 40 or so years after the life of Christ, and John has had time to reflect theologically on who Jesus is. But here is the difficulty, and sometimes when I'm teaching at Montreat, I'll say to my students, all right, today you better sit up straight and listen hard and take a note or two, or you won't get this. And this is the difficult part of today's message, is that truth as you and I tend to understand it, and truth as John is trying to explain it, are really 
kind of far apart. And my goal is to bring them together to give you an understanding of what John is attempting to teach you this morning and me too. Let me illustrate. Uh, In my life, I've had the privilege to meet some really neat people, as have you. And one of those persons that I've had the privilege to meet, her name is Jeanette Harris. Miss Harris, as I call her, Jeanette Harris is a, there's her picture on the screen. Uh, I lived with uh, Miss Harris for five years when I was a single man. She was in her 80s at the time. And then later, Miss Harris came to live behind us and live behind our house, uh, just really in our backyard for another uh, set of uh, years. And so I got to know her quite well. Uh, Miss Harris, uh, she married Woody when she was older, really, for her age, almost 30 years old. But they were married for quite some time. He died, and she lived almost to be 100. She lived uh, 20-some years without being with Woody. But hardly a day passed when she did not mention Woody. She never fell out of love with Woody. Uh, Miss Harris refused to curse. She just wouldn't do that. She refused to curse. Uh, so she had one word when she was really mad. I only heard it twice in all the time I knew her. I guess she made it up. It was her substitute curse word, and it was confonsiderate. <laughs> Have no clue where it came from, but that's how you knew Miss Harris was angry. She was an avid historian, and until she died, her brain was sharp, and she could recount history better than most history teachers. I also lived with her during the OJ trial, and until her death, he was innocent in her eyes. And you need not try to convince her otherwise. That man was innocent. As a matter of fact, there were two trials going on at the time, the trial of O.J. and the trial of, li- of living with Miss Harris while she watched it. Every minute of it, she watched that trial. She was an amazing cook. You'll see a picture of her uh, in the kitchen with those biscuits. And she uh, would uh, say two words. And when she said two words, wherever you were in the house, you dropped what you were doing. You headed straight to the kitchen. Those two words were buttered biscuits. And buttered biscuits meant you came while they were hot. You slathered that butter on there and a little bit of honey. And it was a precursor, like a, a southern appetizer to a great meal. Uh, Some people have asked, how in the world did you not blow up with weight when you lived with her? During that time, no lie, I ran four miles a day, almost every day, just to eat. Just so I could eat. That's Miss Harris. With all of my description of her, unless you met her, it falls short. It really does. Some of you met her. You got to know her. But if you didn't, you only see the pictures and it falls short. John feels the same way. He was Jesus' best friend and he wants his uh, readers to get Jesus. But not only does John feel that way, Jesus feels that way. And he wants everybody around him to get God. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the who class? 
Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we're not talking about facts this morning. We're talking about truth in a different way. Let me uh, read to you, it'll be on the screen, how Andreas Kostenberger describes this. When John deals with truth, he deals with truth as personal, relational concept that has its roots and origin in none other than God himself. Uh, You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Jesus is not the truth about God. He is the truth of God. You must get that. Jesus is not the truth about God. Jesus is the truth of God. In your life groups this week, you'll look at John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth of God. So John, in this section, shows the truth against three imposters. It is against the backdrop of what isn't that John shows clearly what is, or who isn't and who is. So we'll discover those. Number one, Jesus is the true high priest. Jesus is arrested. The soldiers bind him, and they take him to Caiaphas' house. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 of John 18, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Uh, Let me uh, just talk for a moment about uh, what a high priest did. The high priest had a job that went all year long, but a very specific task one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he would go behind the Holy of Holies or behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Now, just so we get this, there's the outer court of the temple, the inner court of the temple, then there's the Holy of Holies. And when we talk curtain, we're not talking something that you could go to Walmart and readily buy. This curtain was nine inches thick. So you've got a nine-inch thick curtain that separates the inner court from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and the, the glory of God dwelt there. And once a year, the high priest would put on his priestly robes. Around the bottom were bells. Uh, attached to one of his legs was a rope And when he went into the Holy of Holies, if there was any unconfessed sin in his life, he died immediately, thus the bells. If they no longer heard the bells, the priest had died, thus the rope. They'd pull him out because they themselves could not go into the holy presence of God. That was his job He stood in for the people. Caiaphas had long lost sight of his role as high priest, and he had become a polished politician. So much so that he preaches the gospel without knowing it. Listen to what he said. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Caiaphas had no clue he was preaching the gospel. What is Caiaphas trying to say? Well, the people are rowdy. Uh, Put my finger in the wind. See which way the wind is blowing. Let's give the people what they want. That's what politicians do. Caiaphas is just being a politician. The people are unruly. Let's give them who they want or what they want. Then we need somebody to die. That's all Caiaphas is saying. He has no clue that he, the imposter high priest, is standing in front of the true high priest. You see, Caiaphas went in once a year, or was the high priest was to go in once a year, every year, to present the sacrifice. Jesus would go behind that veil, that curtain. And if you recall, Scripture says when Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake, and that nine-inch curtain tore in two from top to bottom. This was dramatic. Christ would go once and for all. But he wouldn't go with the lamb like the high priest did and take that lamb's blood and spread it over the Ark of the Covenant. No. Jesus would go with his own blood. Why? He is the true high priest. We call that sacrifice. I am convinced that all of art done well and that in all of creation, the redemption story just rolls out. You just have to look to see it. And so I went looking, and here's what I found. Believe it or not, an octopus. Check it out on the screen. It is four meters long. It is a giant Pacific octopus, the largest species in the world. It lays and tends to one super brood of eggs, 100,000 eggs at one time. So dedicated are these mothers to their eggs, carefully caressing them to keep them clean and supplied with oxygen, that these mothers during this time have no chance to eat nor to look after themselves. So after six months of caring for this super brood of 100,000 eggs, these mothers die every time just when the eggs are safe for the sea world. The moms die. That is not an imposter. That is my friends, is true sacrifice. So it is with the true high priest. Jesus says the true high priest wouldn't take a a lamb and he would himself be the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews reflecting on this says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession Could I divert for a moment and say if you've walked into this place this morning and you are dangling by a thread to your belief that Christ is the Son of God, 
than what the writer of Hebrews says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, through the curtain, behind the curtain, the curtain has been ripped in two. Hold fast. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't give in. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Whatever the sin that tempts you, Jesus has felt that temptation. Whatever it is, you may say, oh no, Jerry, not mine, yes, yours. Not what I'm going through, yes, what you're going through. Why? He passed through the heavens into planet earth, into your existence as the true high priest experienced every heartache, every temptation that you as a human being would experience so that you as a human being then can go behind that curtain into the holy of holies, ushered into the very presence of God. And if you're here this morning and you're hanging by a thread and you wonder, is there hope for me? The writer of Hebrews says, yes, because we have a true high priest. Number two, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Notice what happens. They lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters to Pilate's place. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Listen to this. So ironic. So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The high priest, along with the chief priest, and now a crowd is gathering. They've made their way to Pilate's headquarters. Why? They find no legal way to take Jesus' life. So they want to really kick the proverbial ball down the road to Pilate. Maybe Pilate can do this for us. It's a total political move. But when they get there, notice the irony. They refuse to go into Pilate's headquarters lest they defile themselves and they're unable to eat the Passover lamb. (laughs) The Passover lamb, what was that? It went all the way back to Egypt. God had sent plague after plague after plague. Pharaoh won't listen. God sends plagues. Pharaoh won't listen. Finally, God says, I'm sending the last plague. And this plague... I will destroy the firstborn in every family unless you do one thing. Take a lamb, a male, young lamb, without blemish. Kill it, sacrifice it, and take the blood of that lamb and smear it on the doorpost, top and sides. And that night, God says, when I pass through, I will, what? Pass over. Thus the Passover. When I pass through, I'll see the blood and I'll pass over. You see, if you're in here this morning and you say, Jerry, I'm just so tired of hearing about blood, you'll never not hear about it. It's all the way through, the old and the new. And so that night, all who believed did they sacrificed a lamb they smeared it on the doorposts god passed through their 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 first firstborn their oldest child lived but in all of egypt there was weeping and there was mourning for all the children who had died do you know what's interesting please hear me 
There was nothing of personal righteousness that made God pass over one of those houses. One condition. Blood on the door. Somebody could have had a temper tantrum in this house. Blood on the door. And God will pass over. And so what happened, they allowed... Israel to go. And so every single year, Israel in their religious calendar would celebrate the Passover. And they would commemorate how God in that night delivered them out of Egypt. It is that time of year. Here are these religious leaders. They're looking at the Passover lamb. The true Passover lamb. But they're unwilling to go into Pilate's quarters lest they defile themselves so as not to eat their now imposter Passover lamb. Why? It is ritual, not faith. It is religion, not relationship. There they are. Popular author, and I didn't know this existed till this week, shame researcher. So people research shame. Shame researcher Brene Brown recently talked about coming back to church after years away. And the moment, she says, the whole Jesus thing finally clicked. Here's what she said. Part of it will be on the screen in a moment. People will... People, she says, I don't know, I've never met anybody who wants to do this, but this is what she said. People would want to, people would want to love to be unicorns and rainbows. Maybe you're out there. All right, so maybe you'd like to be a rainbow or a unicorn. Have at it. She says, so then you send Jesus and people say, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. As Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. She goes on to say, love isn't hearts and bows. It is very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be death, a death, For forgiveness to happen, she says, in all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. Her re-entry into the Christian faith was that an easy, easy way was one that did not include Forgiveness, And if you're in here this morning and you've ever had to forgive somebody who has deeply hurt you, you know that is true. What was it for her? She said, I discovered blood on the floor. And where there was blood on the floor, there was forgiveness. Well, the Passover lamb was offered once, celebrated once a year to commemorate, wasn't it? One lamb, its blood for one lentil. One doorpost, Jesus' blood, when applied to your life, lasts for all eternity. His blood, when applied to your life, is there to stay. John 
writes, speaking of John the Baptist, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you took the Passover lamb's blood and applied it to the doorpost, it worked for your house and your house alone. But when Jesus died on the cross and his blood covered the floor, it covered the floor for the sins of the whole world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Please hear me. You cannot forgive yourself. If you were to die for your own sins, there wouldn't be enough blood on the floor. Also, please know, because your mama and daddy are good followers of Christ does not mean that you have have trusted Christ at all. You will come the same way everybody else comes, and it is because of the blood of Christ as the true Passover lamb. Thirdly, Jesus is the true king. Pilate tries to persuade them to take Jesus and judge him by their law. Listen, he says, it is not lawful, or they say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Where does that come? Earlier in John 12, 32 through 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said that to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He would be lifted up on the cross. I find it amazing that Jesus is standing in front of an earthly ruler who can decree it and he will die, but he is still in charge. Why? Because he is the true king. Pilate goes back into Jesus. The two talk. Pilate becomes noticeably frustrated. Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. What is Jesus saying? Earthly kingdoms have earthly armies who fight for them. And as a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus was arrested, Peter, poor Peter, right? Peter, he can't fish. Every time we see him in scripture, he's fished all night and caught nothing. And that's his profession. He opens his mouth, inserts his foot almost every other time he talks. And now he sees the crowd coming to get Jesus. He grabs a sword. I don't know why he's carrying a sword, but he grabs a sword out of his sheath. And he's going for the jugular and cuts the ear off instead. Come on, Peter. That's pathetic, right? He, he cuts the guy's ear off. And what does he do? Well, if this had been a king, all of Jesus' army would have marched forward. They would have uh, began a battle, would have enraged. If this is an earthly kingdom, no. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus does the most remarkable thing. He performs a surgery immediately. Blood must be flowing from the God's ear. This is a gory scene. Jesus stoops down, picks up an ear. That's kind of gross. All right, picks up an ear and takes it and just sticks it. It's like Mr. Potato Head. Let me just like... Put it right on this dude's ear. Malchus is his name, this soldier. And he, so he just, Mr. Potato Head's him right there. Ear on head. Malchus is healed. What is Jesus saying by his action? He's saying by his actions then what he says by his word now. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we'd all be fighting. 
Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Let me slow down and read that again. Seldom. So we must take it in. Does Jesus give his explicit purpose in his own words? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate goes back to the gathered people and says, I find no fault in this man. He is sufficiently warned. John doesn't record it, but Matthew does. In his his record of the same account, he says, besides while he was sitting Pilate on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife is saying, Pilate, take your hands off. I've suffered much. He's a righteous man. It doesn't faze Pilate. Pilate looks at him and asks, what is truth? In a smirkish way, Pilate's question is as wrong as his attitude. He, it's, it's not facts we're looking for. It's who is truth. That's what Kostenberger said, right? Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate cannot overcome his political prowess. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Do you know what Pilate's problem is? It's the same problem you and I have today. You cannot wash yourself of Jesus' blood. You can't. There's too much blood on the floor. You can't wash yourself of it. Bible scholar and pastor N.T. Wright retells the following story about an archbishop who was hearing confessions of sin from three hardened teenagers in the church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it, so they come into the archbishop. They had gone to the confessional booth, and the first one made up a ludicrous list of sins and began to confess his ridiculous sins, things that he never had done. The priest went, uh, the archbishop went along with it, and the boy ran out of the church laughing. The second boy did the same thing, came up to the confessional, there knelt, there spoke through uh, to this archbishop and confessed his sins. Not really his sins, just a list of sins, a list of ridiculous things he had never done. And he, like the first boy, ran out laughing. And then the third boy came up, and when he did, he did the same thing, gave his list. They were all in this thing together. But the archbishop decided on a different strategy with him. He said, okay, you have confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church and I want you to look at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. 
And I want you to look at his face and say, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. And do it three times. The boy walked over, looked at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. Crown of thorns pushed down over his head, blood flowing, and said, you did all that for me. I don't care that much. Paused, looked at it again, and said, you did all that for me. I don't care that much. Paused and looked at it again and began to say it the third time when he broke into tears before the picture of a bloody, beaten Christ on the cross. And the archbishop said, the reason I know that story so well is I was that third boy. So I want to say something to you this morning, and this is bold. I want to speak, first of all, to believers who are in this room, and you are intent on your sin. Your addiction, you will not address. Your ungodly relationship, you will not abandon. Your greed, you will not get rid of. Your selfishness, you will not let go of. So here's what I want you to do before you leave this place today. I want you to look at Jesus hanging, bleeding on the cross. And I want you to say to him, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. Then indulge yourself in your addiction. Continue that relationship. Steal from your customers while you amass massive amounts of wealth for yourselves. And tomorrow, when you get up, look again at Jesus' face and the blood streaming down and say, again, as you are intent on gossip and ripping apart somebody, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And if you're in here this morning, maybe it's your first time, maybe it isn't, but you have yet to come to Christ. Every day that you live apart from him, whether you want to admit it or not, you're saying, 
you did all that for me and I don't care that much. When I was in college, I was in a glee club, about 65 of us men. Dr. Balanchon was our instructor. Tough guy. Practice. We'd be practicing. And he'd say, oh, the problem's over here. I was a second base. He would say, the problem's over here. Everybody, out. I want these five to sing. We'd sing our part. He would go, oh, okay, I'm getting in. Just the two of you sing. Oh, it's you. That felt great. He would say, it's you. You sing. Whoever it was would sing his part. No, that's not it. Sing it again. No, one more time. No, <sighs> finally, you were throwing off everybody, he'd say. And then we'd do it together again. Impeccable harmony. Unbelievable. Acapella music we could do. Brilliant. We travel, and on this occasion, we had traveled to a church in the low country of South Carolina to sing, believe it or not, in memory of one of our members who had died in a fatal car accident. The night before, about half the group got drunk. The college I attended had very low standards. I wasn't among one of them who drank, but I have my own set of sinful behaviors that I tolerated living in unrepentance. Sunday morning, we get up. One of the songs we did a cappella went like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And just like every Sunday morning, Dr. Balanchon lifted his hands. All 65 of us stood straight, diaphragm in the right position. We began to sing. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, impeccable harmony, but what we were saying is to Jesus, you did all that for me, and we don't care that much. On which the prince of glory died, all of us in our tuxedos, carefully pressed. You did all that for me, Jesus. I don't care that much. My richest gain, I count as loss. We would go on that note up and down. I still remember all my notes to this day. And the people are enthralled. But what we were saying was you did all that for me, Jesus, but I don't care that much. And poor contempt 
on all my pride. Dr. Belanchon smiled. We've made it through the first verse, the first stanza. Impeccable. Nobody had passed out from their drinking of the night before. The church didn't know any better. But there we stood. Looking at the crucified Christ with his beard plucked and the crown of thorns and his side driven by a spear. And collectively, we were saying, you did all that for us, Jesus. And we don't care that much. Some of you sang songs this morning, just like our glee club. I am horrifically ashamed of myself that I was the great pretender that morning. Are you? think you need to think on that. We'll go with that. We'll leave the chairs. Let somebody get them tonight. God bless you. Have a great rest of your Sunday.